Well, good afternoon, everyone. As always, it's a pleasure for me to stand behind this pulpit and bring to you the Word of God. In this Lord's Day, we're going to be continuing our study of the doctrine of providence. But before we begin, let's first start with a word of prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we thank you so much for the time that we will spend in your word, the time that we will spend learning how you control and govern all things, all creatures and actions, Lord, and how all of this is for a specific end. Lord, I pray that you may grant me the ability to clearly speak, and I pray, Lord, um, that you may grant all that is listening here in the church and anyone that may be listening virtually, um, the ability to understand, Lord, grant me the confidence and give to the people listening eyes to see, ears to hear, and heart to receive and understand what your word teaches. Lord, we thank you for this time. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Last Lord's Day, we started on the doctrine of providence. And if you recall, I went to the confession for the definition of what providence was in our divines in chapter five of the confession in faith in section one, define providence in this way. God, the creator of all things, doth uphold, direct, dispose, and govern all creatures, actions, and things from the greatest even to the least by his most wise and holy providence, according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and immutable counsel of his own will, to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, goodness, and mercy. Last week, we spent some time talking about the importance of this doctrine, why it was so that this doctrine we need to understand. And if you recall, I gave six reasons why I believe that this doctrine was important. The first being that it helps us to focus less on our circumstances and more on the big picture. So often, as I mentioned last week, we focus on our circumstances and we don't look at what God is doing through them. And understanding that God governs and controls all things helps us to focus less on our circumstances and more on the big picture. The next reason I gave was that it gives us a reason to pray. Unlike the deist God, the watchmaker God that just creates the world and sits back and does nothing, we have a God who is active in all creation. And being active, we know that we can come to him, we can talk to him, we can pray to him, and we have confidence that he hears us and he will answer us according to his will. And then we saw not only that it gives us a reason to pray, but it also gives us a reason to trust in the promises of God. Throughout the scripture, and we will get to this a little bit more today, we see God giving many promises. And if God doesn't govern and control all things, how could he truly keep those promises? Because if someone can thwart his hand by controlling an aspect that God can't control, how is it that we can be confident that God will do what he said he will do? So understanding God's providence helps us to trust in the promises of God. Not only that, but it helps us to not grow anxious or fearful at perceived calamity. And believe me, especially in this week with it being an election week, I think there's many people across the country who are fearful of 
calamity that may come about depending on who wins in office. And understanding that God is in control over all things, like, I don't know if you remember the analogy that Calvin gave in the Institutes, when you look at the clouds in the sky and the storm, and it looks crazy, it looks chaotic, but really, in reality, it's calm in the same way. When things look crazy, we know that God is there controlling all things. So it gives us confidence to know and to walk and to trust in God, even in the midst of what, what seems to be chaos. The fifth point that we looked at was that understanding that God controls all things by his providence allows us to now focus on our duties and commands because we know that God governs and controls all things. So all we got to do is just do what God tells us to do. As simple as that. And then the last point is that understanding this providence of God helps us to truly walk by faith. This Lord's Day, what I'd like to do is touch upon one point that I just didn't have time to focus in on in regards to another reason why I believe this doctrine is important. We'll spend much of this sermon really focused on this point, and Lord willing, depending on how long it takes me to get through this, we'll move from there and we'll start to get into the nitty-gritty in regards to providence. We'll talk about some of the aspects of providence, and Lord willing, we'll also talk about some of the wrong thinking that oftentimes happens when a person has a misunderstanding of the providence of God. Because certainly I want to make sure that if we are confident, we understand that God governs and controls all things, that we don't make some of the mistakes that people make in misunderstanding and misapplying what this doctrine teaches. So now, that being said, so that final point, that final reason why I believe that God's providence is so important to understand is that his providence is what ensures that the redemption purchased by Christ takes place as planned. When Adam sinned in the Garden of Eden, God promises to send a person to defeat sin, to crush the seed of the serpent. We know who that person is. That person is Jesus Christ. Through the next couple of thousands of years, throughout the Old Testament, we see God start to unfold this more and more to his covenant people. When the planned time finally arrives, God sends his son to execute his work of redemption. And brothers and sisters, I want you to really think about this, to really contemplate this. Without God preserving and governing all creatures and all events throughout the world, how would he be able to ensure that Christ would come in the time and manner that he did? And what I'd like to do is look through some of the instances in the Old Testament and in the New Testament that shows the hand of God in bringing us and, and, and ensuring that his promised seed comes as promised. Let's start first by seeing the promise that God makes, not in Genesis 3, I alluded to it, but let's start in Genesis chapter 15. And we'll read verses 1 through 6. Again, this is Genesis chapter 15, if you'd like to follow along, verses 1 through 6. And this is what Moses writes. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision, saying, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. 
Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless? And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. And Abram said, Since you have given no offspring to me, one born in my house is my heir. Then behold, the word of the Lord came to him, saying, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body, he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and said, Now look toward the heavens and count the stars, if you are able to count them. And he said to him, So shall your descendants be. Then he believed in the Lord, and he reckoned it to him as righteousness. And let's turn. I want to go to another passage in Genesis chapter 17. So two chapters later. And we'll read the first 19 verses. Now, when Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will establish my covenant between me and you, and I will multiply you exceedingly. Abram fell on his face, and God talked with him, saying, As for me, behold, my covenant is with you, and you will be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram. But your name shall be Abraham, for I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make nations of you, and kings will come forth from you. I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your descendants after you. I will give to you and to your descendants after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be the sign of the covenant between me and you and every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations. A servant who was born in the house or who is bought with money from any foreigner who is not of your descendants. A servant who was born in your house or who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. Thus shall my covenant be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant. But an uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Then God said to Abraham, as for Sarai, your wife, you shall not call her name Sarai, but Sarah shall be her name. I will bless her and indeed I will give you a son by her. Then I will bless her and she shall be a mother of nations. Kings of peoples will come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said in his heart, will a child be born to a man 100 years old? And will Sarah, who is 90 years old, bear a child? And Abraham said to God, oh, that Ishmael might live before you. But God said, no, but Sarah, your wife, will bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac, and I will establish my covenant with him for an everlasting covenant for his descendants after him. We see in these passages, God promising to make from him a multitude of nations. The son through whom the promise, this promise would be fulfilled would be a son birth to Sarah, 
Though seemingly impossible, given the fact that Sarah was well past the age of childbearing, even in those times where they lived a lot longer than we did, that's still well past the age of childbearing. I think we would all agree. Sarah gets pregnant and gives birth to a son named Isaac. And then we see in Genesis 21, 9 through 12, and I want you to pay special attention to verse 12. Moses writes, now Sarah saw the son of Hagar, the Egyptian, whom she had born to Abraham, mocking. Therefore, she said to Abraham, drive out this maid and her son, for the son of this maid shall not be an heir with my son Isaac. The matter distressed Abraham greatly because of his son. But God said to Abraham, do not be distressed because of the lad and your maid. Whatever Sarah tells you, listen to her, for through Isaac, your descendants shall be made. Now, depending on your Bible translation, the last part might be different from what I just read. I have the New American Standard, and it says, through Isaac, your descendants shall be named. That word, descendants, literally is rendered seed. And that matters because the seed that God is referring to is Jesus Christ. For proof, all you got to do is turn to Galatians chapter 3, verse 16. Where Paul says, now the promises were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say and to seeds, plural, as referring to many, but rather to one and to your seed. That is Christ. God is promising that Christ would come through that line. So we see this promise being made that through that line, Christ, our Savior, would come. And I want you to see now how God preserves that. So last week, we talked about the providential hand of God as it pertains to Joseph, if you remember. We talked about how Joseph was sold into slavery, accused of rape, thrown into jail. And then how in the midst of that, we saw that Joseph was able to see that all that God meant for an ultimate good. Do you remember what that ultimate good was. If not, all you have to do is just go back to Genesis, Genesis 45, 6 through 7, where Joseph says, For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are still five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvesting. God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant in the earth and to keep you alive by a great deliverance. There was a severe famine in the land that was going on for two years and was going to continue for another two years. Had Joseph, had Joseph's family stayed where they were at, there was a good chance that the severity of the famine probably would have caused them to die off. And thus the line through which Jesus would have come would have ended. So think about that. Had Joseph, through the treachery of his brothers, through the lie of Potiphar's wife, had he not come into prison or come into Egypt, thrown into prison, it was through that that the cupbearer heard or had his dream revealed or interpreted. And it was by that that now Joseph had an opportunity to talk to Pharaoh. And then Pharaoh allowed for Joseph's family to come and stay in a land, Goshen, within Egypt. Had none of that happened, then we don't get this part. We don't get them escaping that. We don't get them surviving through that famine. Again, think about it. What would have been the reason for Joseph 
to randomly go to Egypt. Even if he went to Egypt, let's say that obviously the famine would have still taken place. Had he went to Egypt without him being sold off or, or anything like that, what reason would Pharaoh have had to listen to Joseph? What reason would Pharaoh have had to allow for Joseph's family to now come into Egypt and stay there? So see, God uses this to bring them. Why? In order to preserve, like Joseph said, a remnant in the earth to ensure that God's promise continues on. The next point that I want to point to deals with a, I think what many people would would say in regards to, you know, the history of a particular family, probably an embarrassing account. The account of Judah and Tamar. If you're not familiar with the account of Judah and Tamar, it's one of those accounts that you find in Maury and Jerry Springer. Not so much you would expect by people who were of the book, who were considered Christian, so to speak. This story of Judah and Tamar. So Judah, as you know, son of Jacob, Judah has three sons. His firstborn, Ur, um, gets married to a woman named Tamar. Because Ur was wicked in the eyes of God, God kills him. uh, Not Moses, excuse me. Judah gives to Tamar the second son, And the second son is to fulfill the duty of her brother-in-law and basically have a child, or not him have a child, but provide a child for the deceased Ur. He refuses to do that, and God kills him. And then they have a third son who was too young at that point in time. So Judah says, hey, wait for my younger son to become of age, and then I'll give you into marriage. Judah, or not Judah, Tamar thinks to herself, gosh, you know, I might die before this takes place. So what happens is one day Judah goes into the city and Tamar knows that he is coming into the city and she disguises himself. And Judah thinks that, oh, this woman that he sees is a prostitute. So then he calls for her services, not realizing who she was. Well, Tamar gets pregnant. Judah, not realizing who got her pregnant, gets, you know, mad, angry. Says, oh, this woman needs to be stoned. Now, Tamar had a garment from Judah, and she said, oh, well, whoever gave me this is the baby's daddy. And lo and behold, Judah realized, oh, I'm the father. And obviously, Tamar isn't killed, and Tamar gives birth to Two people, you can see it in Genesis 38, verses 27 through 30, if you like to read it yourself. But one of the sons that she gives birth to, his name is Perez. Now, why does that matter? Why am I bringing this up? Well, let's turn in our Bibles to the book of Ruth. In the book of Ruth. Now, I'll be reading from Ruth chapter 4 towards the tail end, but for those of you who are not familiar with the book of Ruth, most people, well, not, I won't say most people, a lot of people in Christian circles see the book of Ruth as kind of a modern-day love story. You have this young girl, Ruth, who was widowed and falls in love with this rich, um, rich person, Boaz, and they fall in love. The reality of the fact is, although obviously they do get married and fall in love, the reality is the story of Ruth is 
It's not meant to be this love story, but rather is meant to show God's work in providence itself. As you know, the story of Ruth, Naomi has two sons. They marry, um, they're from the land of Judah, from the town of Bethlehem, as a matter of fact. They move out from the land to Moab, marry two Moabite women, Ruth and Orpah. They die. Naomi, along with Ruth, come back. Orpah stays in the land. And while Ruth is gleaming in the fields, she finds Boaz. And obviously the rest from there is history. Boaz eventually redeems Ruth. And Ruth becomes Boaz's wife. So we, and in all of that, we read this in Ruth chapter 14, 4, verses 16 through 22. Then Naomi took the child and laid him in her lap and became his nurse. The neighbor women gave him a name saying, a son has been born to Naomi. So they named him Obed. He is the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Who was Perez? Oh, Perez was what we just saw in Genesis chapter 38. The son born to Judah and Tamar. To Perez was born Hezron, and to Hezron was born Ram, and to Ram, Amenadab, and to Amenadab was born Nashon, and to Nashon, Salmon, and to Salmon was born Boaz, and to Boaz, Obed, and to Obed was born Jesse, and to Jesse was born David, to King David. So isn't that amazing? See, what we see in this account of Ruth and Boaz is not some Middle Eastern version of the notebook or crazy rich Asians, but rather God ensuring that the line through which, through which the promised seed would come would be preserved. Now, I want you to think about this. This blew my mind when I thought about it. Moses wrote the book of Genesis, obviously, where we see the account of Judah and Tamar. But Moses lived about three to four hundred years before the account that we just read in Ruth. So now why would Moses include this random and pretty embarrassing account of Judah and Tamar? I mean, he didn't know what was going to happen hundreds of years later. Why would he include this, again, embarrassing thing? Usually when you're writing a history of your people, you kind of, you know, not want to make mention of things that seem kind of incestuous or just kind of terrible, but we see it included here. Why? Well, clearly, the hand of God was leading him to include this account because of the future Christological implications. Beyond that, next point, before we look at the New Testament itself in regards to God preserving the people, to ensure that Christ would come as planned. Let's look at the story, the well-known story of Esther. So again with Esther, a fairly familiar story. I think most people know with Esther or in the book of Esther, you had a king, his name, it's always hard for me to pronounce, Ahasuerus, who had a queen named Queen Vashti. Queen Vashti, basically made him, made him angry, and he disposed of her as queen and sought to have someone else, or wanted to have someone else to be queen. And 
obviously, through all the suitors that came to him, he, you know, Esther caught his eye and Esther became his wife. Now, as this was going on, so you had a man, Esther's uncle named Mordecai, and he wasn't well liked by an, another man in Ahasuerus's court. His name was Haman. In fact, Haman hated Mordecai so much that he wanted to kill all the Jews, which is has to be a crazy hatred. Could you imagine someone hating you so much that they not only want to kill you, but like all of your family? So this was the case in regards to Haman and Mordecai. And Esther, because of the fact that she was queen, had an ability to be able to come before the king and speak to the king to ensure that the people were not destroyed. And obviously, we know what's happened. They weren't destroyed itself. Had the Jews been killed, had that happened, that would have ended the line through which Christ was to come. God raised up Esther and placed her as queen so that his line would be preserved. Think about it. If Ahasuerus did not get mad at Vashti, and get rid of Vashti, there would be no reason for him to look for another wife. And then no longer looking for another wife, still would have had the issue in regards to Haman and Mordecai. But then now, rather than a Jew being able to come to the king and convince the king not to destroy the Jews, we had Esther, through the providence of God, be able to do that and thus preserve the line. You know what's so interesting about the book of Esther? So the book of Esther is one of the books, I think probably the only book where the name God isn't mentioned at all throughout the entire book. But it's the one book to where you clearly see the providence of God really working out. Mordecai was able to perceive this somewhat when he says in Esther 4 verses 13 through 14, do not imagine that you in the king's palace can escape any more than all the Jews. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance will arise for the Jews from another place, and you and your father's house will perish. And who knows whether you have not attained royalty for such a time as this. So he says, who knows? This might be the reason why you're queen. And the reality of the fact is, it was. This is why God placed her in that place for this very purpose. So we see, and there's many more examples in the Old Testament that shows God preserving, ensuring that what he had intended, what he promised, not just to Abraham, but to Adam at the very beginning, is carried on. That they are not destroyed. That his line goes, that the seed that was promised, arrives as he intends it to come. And now let's look at the New Testament. And we're going to focus just on the birth of Jesus. Because just contemplating his birth will blow your mind, honestly. Let's start first by looking at Micah, chapter 5. And in Micah, chapter 5, this is what we read. But as for you, Bethlehem, Ephrathah, too little to be among the clans of Judah. From you, one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, 
from the days of eternity. So Micah, in that passage, states that the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. Mary and Joseph, mind you, weren't in Bethlehem. They lived in Nazareth, in the land of Galilee, while they were engaged. And Nazareth was about 60 miles north of Bethlehem, which, if you walked that distance without stopping, would take about 20 hours. So, mind you, Mary was was nine months pregnant, and I don't know of any woman who is nine months pregnant that just would willy-nilly want to just walk 60 miles just because. So what brought them, given the fact that we know that the Messiah is to be born in Bethlehem, how would they get there? Or in other words, what would have been the means by which they got there? What would have motivated them to go from Nazareth, or more than likely some of their extended family or whatnot were, to now go to Bethlehem? What happened? Well, let's take a look at the Gospel of Luke, chapter 2. And we'll read the first six verses. Now, in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone was on his way to register for the census, each to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was engaged to him and was with child. While they were there, the days were completed for her to give birth. Now think about this. A couple of things came to my mind when first time I, I, I saw this. First and foremost, only a ruler can require a census, or a ruler can only require a census from the regions that are under his control. Just like with us, it's not like we can require a census from the people of Mexico or people of Australia can require a census of us. No. If we're doing a census, you know, the government can only require a census of Obviously, America itself. So had Israel not been under Roman control, they would have not been required to take a census, which would have given no reason for Joseph and Mary to leave from Nazareth and to travel to Bethlehem to fulfill Scripture. So think about that. God raised up Caesar to decree this census God ensured that the nation of Israel was under Roman authority. Why? So that the census would be required and that Mary and Joseph can come from where they were in Nazareth to Bethlehem to give birth in Bethlehem as was already prophesied in Micah 5.2. But beyond that, turn with me to the book of Matthew chapter 2. Verses 13 through 15. This is Jesus' flight to Egypt. Now when they had gone, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Get up, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is going to search for the child to destroy him. 
So Joseph got up and took the child and his mother while it was still night, and he left for Egypt. He remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what had been spoken by the Lord through the prophet. Out of Egypt, I called my son. So we see in this passage, Matthew 2, 13 to 15, Mary and Joseph fleeing along with baby Jesus to to Egypt to escape Jesus being killed by King Herod. Them going to Egypt was to fulfill the prophecy in Hosea 11, verse 1. When Israel was a youth, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, this Herod was king of Judea, not Galilee, where the city of Nazareth was in. So had Jesus been born in Nazareth, one, the decree to kill any infant boy younger than two years of age would not have impacted Jesus, so there would have been no need for them to go to Egypt. And also, Herod would have even issued the decree because the wise men wouldn't have come to Judea to tell him, hey, you know, a king has been born in your land. And had that not happened, there would have been another prophecy that would not have been fulfilled. The prophecy that we see in the book of Jeremiah, chapter 31, verse 15, which says, thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah. Ramah is a region located right near Bethlehem. So right near in Judea, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. So again, you see the hand of God here, even in this, to ensure that all of these things take place as promise. Now, you might be saying, okay, I see where you're coming from, JP, but I mean, seems like God is doing a lot just to have some person come all the way from Nazareth to Galilee. I mean, couldn't you just find some other qualified virgin in Bethlehem rather than a person living in Nazareth? I mean, that seems that that would have been a lot easier for God to do. No, not at all. Because see, we read in Matthew 2, verses 19 through 23, this. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt and said, get up. Take the child and his mother and go into the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. So Joseph got up, took the child and his mother, and came into the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over in Judea, in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned by God in a dream, he left for the regions of Galilee and came and lived in a city called Nazareth. This was to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. He shall be called a Nazarene. And we also see in Luke 2, 39, when they had performed everything according to the law of the Lord, they returned to Galilee to their own city of Nazareth. So him being called a Nazarene was also to fulfill, according to Matthew, another prophecy. Had God picked someone else, what would have been the reason to travel to Nazareth? Nazareth, you have to understand, was not a destination place. In fact, in some accounts, for example, I'll give you one example. In in the Gospel of John, just really quick, the Gospel of John 1, verse 45, you almost have a person speaking contently of anyone from Nazareth. In in John 1, verses 46, or starting verse 45, Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can anything good come out of Nazareth? So we see, and, and I realize that's a bit anecdotal, but then we see just from accounts like this, Nazareth wasn't necessarily one of those places that a person decides to go to unless maybe they already had family there. And we know Joseph lived or was from Nazareth. So therefore him going back there made sense because again, he had family there. He was from there itself. So in other words, no, it couldn't have been another person. God so ordered all of this to ensure that each and every one of these prophecies, I know that there are many others as it pertains to his birth that I haven't even touched on, gets fulfilled. This is the hand of God. This is why it's so necessary for us to understand that God does providentially preserve and govern all things. I mean, we barely got through the birth of Jesus, but I think you get my point. Had God not planned and guided the events surrounding Jesus' birth, even to Caesar being on the throne, Israel being under Roman authority, it could not happen exactly as it did to fulfill the scriptures as it did. Beyond his birth, when you look throughout the entire gospel account, you'll see time after time events taking place in the life of Jesus to fulfill Old Testament prophecies. Some were purposefully fulfilled by Jesus, like when he gets on the donkey that fulfills um, prophecy in Zechariah. But others were fulfilled without people realizing it, like when Jesus was on the cross and the Roman guards tore or divided his garments. That fulfilled the prophecy in Psalm 22. Jesus avoided death time after time because it's not yet his appointed time. God ensured that Jesus would not die until he said it was time. Now, my point in drawing all of this out for taking the time to do that is to show that God's providence over all things was necessary for all the details over thousands of years to take place in order to ensure that the perfect and exact execution of the most important event for us Christians, the death, burial and resurrection of Jesus takes place. Had there been one point that deviated from God's plan, then we don't get the promised redemption. So therefore, the providence of God is important because it guaranteed that our Savior would come and die for our sins as promised. Robert Raymond, in his systematic theology, he quotes Thomas Henry Lewis Parker, a scholar and former lecturer at Durham University. And he says this, which I think really summarizes my point. He says, Providence is God's gracious outworking of his purpose in Christ, which issues his dealings with man. We are saying that from the beginning, God has ordered the course of events toward Jesus Christ and his incarnation. From the biblical point of view, world history and personal life stories possess significance only in light of the incarnation. The squandered little story of lust in Judah's dealings with Tamar falls into place in the genealogy of the Messiah. Caesar Augustus was on the throne in Rome for the sake of the unknown baby in the manger. So this is of utmost importance. God so controls all things. Why? We see here one of the chief reasons why to ensure that something that was so necessary for us take place as promised. 
all of these amazing acts of providence now leads me to talk about a distinction in God's work of providence that you may have caught on to, God's ordinary providence and his special providence. See, ordinary providence deals with God's preservation and control over the world generally speaking, him providing food for the animals, him upholding all nature. Special providence deals with God's care and provision from those whom he has specifically covenanted with, the church. See, because we are God's beloved, he does deal with us uniquely and differently. God does in a very special way, takes care of us. Our divines mention in chapter five, the final section, section seven, this. As the providence of God doth in general reach to all creatures, so after a most special manner, it taketh care of his church and disposeth all things to the good thereof. You see, when Jesus says in Matthew 6, and he talks about how the lilies of the field grow and they're clothed by him, he goes on to make the implication that if God takes care of the lilies and the grass, of course he's going to take care of the believer. And not just that, but then not just that he will take care of the believer, but he will even more so take care of the believer. He uses God's ordinary providence to point to his special providence. See, ordinary providence and special providence, they're interrelated. See, special providence is what provides the ultimate reason for ordinary providence. And ordinary providence is what makes it possible for God's special providence to take place. Just think through everything that I just mentioned in regards to all the works that took place from what happened with Joseph to what happened with Esther, her being raised to the throne, to even Israel becoming under Roman authority. These are all God's ordinary providence. And what were they for? To ensure that God's special work of providence takes place as promised. Paul says in Romans 8, 28, and we know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to his purpose. This is a very popular verse and rightly so popular passage. But see, this passage wasn't given to the human race as a whole, but to the church specifically. All things work together for our good. But see, that good is not a, a new job, a big home, or a nice new Cadillac, although those things are, are nice. That good is our redemption by Christ and our being secured by the Holy Spirit. See, we saw how the events in the Old Testament and the Gospels were directed in order that the coming of Christ would come as planned and his sacrifice on the cross would take place as promised. And who were the benefactors of that? Who were the benefactors of this meticulous planning by God? The elect. See, all those who before the foundations of the world, God the Father chose in Christ are the benefactors of God's guidance of history and all to the glory of God. So we see God working all things, all things out for his ultimate glory. But we see us being, as the psalmist says, the apple of God's eye. We benefit from that specifically, different from those who are not in Christ. And this ought to give us joy. This ought to make us rejoice, knowing that God so cares for us in this way. 
Now, all of that being said, this I want to now shift from emphasizing this to making sure that this glorious understanding of God's providence does not lead us to, quite frankly, just wrong thinking, bad implications. As with any other point in theology, there is a balance that we have to have when it comes to our theology. See, we are walking a narrow road as Christians with ditches on both ends. If we veer too much on one side, we fall into one ditch. If we veer too much on the other side, we fall into another ditch. And as a Christian, we have to ensure that our theology does not lead us to fall into either one of those ditches. And I want to make sure that we're avoiding that. See, throughout the secular culture, and sadly in some Christian cultures today, you know, there's a tendency to minimize or reject the providence of God in all things. Therefore, the focus is exclusively of what man does without any thought at all in regards to what God does. And this is what James wants us to avoid in James chapter 4 when he says, starting in verse 13, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city and spend a year there and engage in business and make a profit. Yet you do not know what your life will be like tomorrow. You are just a vapor that appears for a little while and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and also do this or that. But as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. So don't be arrogant, so arrogant as to emphatically declare what will take place as though you know. But on the other hand, you have those, and this is what I want to get to, you have those with an unbalanced view of God's providence that leads them to inaction. Because in their mind, as they reason, God providentially controls all things, the thought process goes, well, this was going to happen anyway, so, I mean, it's not like I can change God's plan, so why do anything at all? As I will talk about in a few weeks, God oftentimes uses means to accomplish his plans. So any idea that ignores this point will oftentimes lead to the Christian not doing what God commands. And because I focus so much on God's providential control over all things, I did not want to leave this pulpit without preemptively correcting some errors that I know can happen if this balance isn't in our thinking. So a couple of points a couple of wrong implications that people sometimes draw from a misunderstanding of providence. It's definitely not from an understanding, it's from a misunderstanding. But I want for us to avoid. The first wrong implication is laziness. See, God gives us directives as it pertains to work. We see the commands to do so and to be diligent at that. Last week, I gave a number of verses as it pertains to that. But one verse, just by way of reminder, was Proverbs 10, verse 4, where Solomon writes, Poor is he who works with a negligent hand, but the hand of the diligent makes risks. See, what sometimes happens is that we start to focus so intently on the fact that God is the one who does make porn rich, and that is true, that we miss or ignore the means by which God grants wealth. And that's through work, hard work. See, in our understanding of that, 
and our understanding that God gives wealth ought not to lead us to not doing what God requires to gain wealth. The second bad implication is, and I know we've all probably heard this one, is not sharing the gospel. See, oftentimes you'll hear an Arminian make the argument, well, if God elects and is the one who draws people to him and nothing can thwart his plan, well, what's the point of evangelizing? Aren't people going to come to him anyways if they're elect? See, that train of thought, sadly, you even find with some so-called reformed people. And it's one that flies directly in the face of what the scriptures command for us. See, this is what happens when you have someone thinking philosophically without grounding their thinking theologically or biblically. What do I mean by that? Well, in the gospel, in, in the letter that Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 10, and I'll just start in verse 13 and we'll read to verse 15. Paul writes, whoever will call on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? How will they believe in him whom they have not heard? And how will they hear without a preacher? How will they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news of good things. Paul points to the importance of the word preached by those who are sent to preach the gospel. It is through the gospel proclaimed that people come to believe. Paul, in the beginning of this letter, in Romans 1.16, says that the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Before Christ ascended, he commissions the disciples to preach the good news of salvation. Throughout the entire book of Acts, you see the work of the Holy Spirit converting men and women from all over through the preaching of the gospel by the disciples. Even for us Christians today, we weren't saved independent of hearing the gospel. Even for those of you who may have grown up in the church and can't necessarily recall a salvation moment, you heard the gospel preached regularly from the pulpit. So it flies in the face of what the Bible says to assume that God's providence is an excuse to not share the gospel. Of course, we know that not all are called to be preachers, and that's not what I'm talking about. But none of us ought to be afraid when opportunity arises to share with a neighbor, friend, or co-worker the message of salvation that saved you. And don't use God's providence as an excuse for your unwillingness to share the gospel. So we ought to avoid that type of wrong thinking. The next point, the next bad implication is recklessness, carelessness. And I'll start first by reading from reading a, an account that Gordon Clark in his book on the confession of faith wrote in the chapter on God's providence. Clark writes this. My uncle once hired a chauffeur to drive him around a mountainous part of Turkey. As the chauffeur kept up too fast a speed around the sharp curves along the precipices, my uncle urged more caution. But the Turk replied that the date of their deaths were, was faded. And if this was their day, caution would be of no use. Whereas, if it was not the day, caution was unnecessary. So here you have Gordon Clark's uncle in a car with a person who made the claim that caution wasn't necessary because if it was their time to go, it wasn't like anything was going to stop it anyways. They were going to die if God called for them to die anyways. Now, I have much to say about that thinking, but I want to let Clark finish his train of thought. And he writes this. The Turk was clever, 
but not Calvinistic. The Bible teaches that all things are certainly determined, but that God's providence arranges events according to the nature of second causes, either necessarily, freely, or contingently. God does not decree an auto wreck apart from its causes. Caution is the usual cause of safety, and wrecks are caused by recklessness. Clark is getting at a point that I'm going to talk in more detail about in a few weeks, but I do want to make sure I'm emphasizing here because it's important. See, the Turk, he wasn't wrong in his understanding in regards to the day of death being determined by God. That's true. God does determine when we die. Where he was wrong was in how he ought to behave in light of that. See, God determining our death, or any other event for that matter, is not an excuse for us to live recklessly or carelessly. We don't know the day of our death, but we do know how certain actions can lead to death. See, our job isn't to focus on the day of death, but rather how God calls us to live. Now, this doesn't just apply to death, but also applies to your health, home, a myriad of, of, of different things. I'll give you a perfect example. As you all know, or most of you may know, my wife suffers from seizures stemming from a car accident that she was in years, years ago, before, before I even knew her. But as a result, she takes medication to keep the seizures controlled. Now, we know ultimately that God is the one ensuring that no seizures, that she has no seizures, and we trust that if she forgets to take her medicine, maybe in one morning, just one day out the blue, that God will ensure that no seizures come upon her. However, that does not mean that we believe that she does not need to take the medicine at all. See, we understand that the ordinary means by which God uses to restrain the seizures is the medication. We will not be so dependent on the medicine that we think God can't control the seizures without it, but we will not presume upon God in such a way that ignores the means that God chooses to use. And this is something that so many people don't truly understand. And tragically, you have many people who they either refuse certain medical procedures or even go to the doc or not go to the doctor when necessary. Obviously, I'm not talking for every willy-nilly thing, but when necessary, because God is their physician, which God is our physician. But the reality of the fact is that they're ignoring what the divines call second causes, secondary causes, the means by which God carries out his ordinary works of providence. Now, again, like I said, I'll have an entire lesson on this point, but I just want to give you one song that I read last week that highlights this point, or I think highlights this point. Psalm 104, verse 21, where the psalmist says, the young lions roar after their prey and seek their food from God. See, when the, the psalmist says that the young lions seek their food from God, Make no mistake, it's not like the lions are sitting there with their mouths open to the sky waiting for an antelope to fall from the sky, although that would be actually pretty cool to see. See, either the mother is bringing the prey to them or they're seeking it out. In either case, God is the ultimate cause of them getting food, and their mother in, this, in that scenario would be the secondary cause, the means by which God gives to them the food. So see, the fact that we understand God's works of providence is not an excuse for us to be careless or reckless. The next point 
is irresponsibility. And this connects with my previous point and on my first point as regards to laziness. God gives us duties to keep. Our duty is to do what God commands, not guess what God may or may not do. Proverbs chapter 24, verses 30 through 34, Solomon writes this, I pass by the field of the sluggard and by the vineyard of the man lacking sense. And behold, it was completely overgrown with thistles. Its surface was covered with nettles and its stone wall was broken down. When I saw, I reflected upon it. I looked and received instruction, a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest. Then your poverty will come as a robber and your want like an armed man. And then we have Proverbs 28 verse, 13, verse 19. He who tills his land will have plenty of food, but he who follows empty pursuits will have plenty of poverty. So Solomon in both of these passages is making a very clear point. See, the result of a person's laziness was want and poverty. The result of a person following pointless things was plenty of poverty. Their irresponsibility was what led to their lack. Had the person chosen to be industrious or diligent, the poverty they acquired would have been avoided. See, oftentimes we try to overthink the obvious. Don't let your thinking or your wrong thinking about God's providence lead you to ignore the obvious commands of God. See, understanding God's providence ought to lead you towards confidently fulfilling your duties, not presumptively ignoring them. And on that word, presumptively, that actually brings me to my last point, presumption. There is a difference between confidently trusting in God and presuming upon God. To be confident in God is a blessing. To be presumptuous is a trap. And to give you a, a, an example of the difference, let's go back to the example that I used with my wife. So as I mentioned, if we happen to forget for her to take her medicine one day, we're not going to be so terrified by the fact that she forgot to take her medicine that now we're thinking, oh my gosh, she's going to have a seizure. No, we're going to trust in God. We're going to pray to God. We're going to ask God, hey, Lord, please ensure that no seizures come upon Deborah. And we're going to trust that God will ensure that, that, ensure that that's the case. That's confidence in God. That's trusting in God. Presumption would be, ah, you don't even need to worry about taking that medicine. God will, God will take care of you. So don't even worry about it. That's presumption. Oftentimes, a person who is presumptuous is being reckless, but using God as a cover for his recklessness. I'll give you a couple of passages from Proverbs. Proverbs 22, verse 3. The prudent sees evil and hides himself, but the naive go on and are punished for it. And if you didn't get it that time, Solomon says it again in Proverbs 27, verse 12. A prudent man sees evil and hides himself. The naive proceed and pay the penalty. And then in Proverbs 14, verse 16. A wise man is cautious and turns away from evil, but a fool is arrogant and careless. A wise person turns away from evil, not runs to it. Now, does, that does not mean, and I want to make myself clear, that when we are compelled to stand in the midst of evil and not run away, that we use this verse as a cover. God did not call us to be cowards, but he did not call us to be fools either. A presumptuous person 
focuses on what God is able to do, but completely ignores what God requires them to do. See, we know that God will protect us from danger, but we aren't to jump into danger needlessly. We know that God will ensure the security of our salvation, but that doesn't mean that now we get to indulge in sin because God will keep us. That is silly. That is presumptuous thinking. And it's that type of thinking that often leads to a person's demise. If you notice with all the points that I gave, and I'm coming to the end of my message here, a theme that I hope you picked up on is how in each of these points, the error was that the person ignored their duties and light of God's providence. And that's what led to the wrong thinking. Brothers and sisters, do not let your misunderstanding of the providential hand of God cause you to shield your eyes from God's duties, from the duties that God gave you. Knowing about God's work of providence ought to be an encouragement in doing what God requires of you. Not a reason to avoid them, not an excuse to not do them. We have been blessed by God in our salvation, and we ought to take pleasure in knowing that all things work together for our good. But don't let that understanding lead to your demise. We saw today how God worked all the Old Testament towards ensuring that the incarnation of Christ happens as planned. And we saw how God worked during the time of Christ to ensure that his incarnation, his birth, death, burial, and resurrection happen as planned. God's work of ordinary providence over all creation helped to ensure that his work of special providence goes as planned. Praise God for that. We are, as the psalmist says, the apple of his eye. But always remember that in calling us to him, God gives us duties. He gives us responsibilities. We still have to keep his law, and we have to look to his word to guide us in all of our lives. Proverbs 16, verse 20, Solomon says, He who gives attention to the word will find good, and blessed is he who trusts in the Lord. The person that Solomon mentions here, this person is blessed because he trusts in the Lord. But what is he also doing? He's giving attention to the word. So trust in the Lord. Take comfort in the knowledge of his providential care over you. I want you to understand that. I want you to understand that, um, that knowledge of his care over you and his working all things together for his glory and your good. But also look to his word and be obedient to what God requires of you. Don't let the misunderstanding in regards to God's providence cause you to ignore the duties that God gives to you. Rest in him, trust in him. Be confident in him, but also listen to him and do what he tells you. Remember, an understanding of providence ought to lead to that, not inaction, but confident action. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.